Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers, using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like School districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice? curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, educate, collaborate. Hi, April. Hi, Ashley. Oh my gosh. Big news. April, drum roll, is our first repeat guest on Ashley Barl on our podcast. Yay. I'm so excited. April couldn't believe it when I told her she was my first repeat guest. You get the honor, April. I feel like the youngest child. Like I get the special treatment. That's right. You are the youngest child. You do get the special treatment. And I think like audience, friends, you are in for a real treat because April's episode, her first episode has done so well. It has stayed in our top 10 since it was launched. And like I was just saying to you offline, April, I think you do such a good job at not only the content, like you are just really good at that kind of ed psych evaluation, eligibility content, but you also are really good at explaining it in a way that makes sense, that's reasonable, that's respectful. And I think that's why that did well. And I'm sure that you've got great stuff to talk to us about today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited. Absolutely. So for people that haven't listened to that first episode, probably everybody has hit pause and been like, "Whoa, that sounds really good. Let's go back and listen about evaluation. Why don't you introduce yourself to my audience? Yes. I founded Rise Educational Advocacy and Consulting about three years ago, but my journey didn't start there. As many of you, I'm sure have a long journey, my special education voyage, and I call it a voyage because it's a voyage for all of us, started many years ago when I was 11 And I did volunteer work and I went to go work in a special education school. And it was like my favorite place to be. And there was all these kids who were severely handicapped because that's back in the day to what we'd use. And I was like, this is my place. These are my people. And then I became a teacher and I had a student in my class and he was not doing well. I thought I did everything right. And I'm like, he is not performing. He must need an IEP. And I felt, I know what I'm doing. I'm a first-year teacher. He's struggling. Something's wrong. So I had him evaluated and the school psych sat down and she said, this child is gifted. He doesn't qualify and you need to change the way you teach. (laughs) I was like, wait a second. So if a child is struggling, it doesn't mean that they have a disability. They could be gifted. And wait a second, I have to change the way I teach. It was just mind blowing. So I got into school psychology and then I became a school psychologist for almost 20 years. And I worked in big districts and small districts and super high performing and low performing. And after all of that, I left the field and I decided to become an advocate. And I decided to use all my information of being a school psych, a parent, a clinician, an LEP, all of that to talk about how we can revise the process and make IEPs more productive so that everyone at the table can have a better meeting and ultimately kids are successful. Yeah, so great. I think so many people probably have journeys like yours where we get smacked with humility or we get smacked with an epiphany. We get smacked with our self-righteousness. And I think that's probably more common or equally as common in education as other fields where people have 
a stereotypical type A personality, take charge people, teachers and people with your personality that just get stuff done. It can really get going like a freight train. And then have, if you humble yourself to learning like you did with that one particular student, it can really take you on a different path. Thank you for being open to that change in that lesson, because man, you have really impacted the lives of so many people. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's awesome. So today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about how to request an evaluation. And this is, so why do we have to talk about that? Can't you just be like, Hey, yo, evaluate me. Hello. And so Here's the thing is that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about why there is a craft and a science and a strategy to requesting evaluation along the course of your special education journey. So initial in the middle, blah, 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 maybe at transition age, et cetera. So why don't you give us a preview and then let's just dive right in. So that is such a fascinating topic to talk about when and why to get tested, because you're absolutely right. So many parents are told, or we spent hours and hours on listservs of, okay, we just submit a letter, right? If we submit a letter, or if my doctor gives me a note saying, my child has an intellectual disability, my child has a learning disability, the school's going to take care of it. And what's frustrating and complicated and makes this whole thing a special education voice is that it doesn't work like that. And so every school has its own culture. Every district has its own culture. And so if you go to one place and you're like, my child is struggling, can you help me? You might be a lucky one and you might be able to fast track and get on that speedboat to get to IEP land. Other school districts, you are having meeting after meeting and you're like, something is going on. And they're like, oh, let's try this RTI. Let's try that. Same in the same boat if your child has an IEP. They do the goals over and over again, and John's not achieving his goals. So we're going to do the same goals, or we're going to now we're going to put him in a special day class. And okay, now he's not successful in the special day class. Now we're going to put him in a special program. And the thought of when we do an evaluation, it gets confusing. And so the whole thinking is special education is really a cycle. It seems like it's a one track way, but it's actually a cycle, right? It starts out at child find and then moves into the evaluation and then it kind of repeats itself. The whole goal about evaluations is we need to understand when we move the cycle and how we can fast track the cycle. So when we know when it's time to test, how we ask and how we communicate with the team so we can get an evaluation that makes sense and truly drives all of our children's learning needs. Yeah. And I think that's it to actually contextualize it, right? I am a why person. I did not realize I was a why person until my own kid was in early intervention and his early interventionist, like the teacher person, the developmental DI, developmental interventionist, I guess, was like, you always want to know why we're doing something. You are such a why person. And I appreciate that. And I was like, oh, I am. You're right. For me, it's always, why are we doing this? Why are we? The clear answer, as you just said, for evaluations is we're doing it so that we really understand the learning profile and the adaptive profile and the medical profile and all of the components to the learner so that we can develop an individualized education plan that helps them make meaningful progress. That actualization is lost on school staff, parents, students, so many people and holy cow, is it valuable? So I'm happy that you started off there. Okay. Then 
How do you do it? Should we start at the beginning at child find and say, okay, so the doctor has told me that my child has a disability or I am noticing that ADHD, symptoms of ADHD, executive functioning, anxiety are getting in the way of their academics. And maybe we should ask that they be evaluated or child is really struggling with reading or math or some other academic skill. So let's start at the beginning. What do you do if you notice something like that? So that's a really good place to start. So like I talk about when I talk about the initial special education voyage, you have to imagine special education is not a roadmap. There's no, you don't stay on the road. It's not, you get on the fast track. I'm in LA, so we're all about freeways. There's no one way, right? There's a fast way. There's a slow way. People get on the sidetrack. People go cut around. Some people speed up. Some people cut you off. It's the same thing. So I like special- pretend. Is there an evaluation that has to do with the ocean? Exactly. Exactly. I, and it's all about- I don't want to go on the freeway. I want a green smoothie and I want to ride on the tent. I'm going to remember that when I see you next time. Okay. Yes. Please. <laughs> In the special education, you're going through the voyage. Imagine yourself as you're a parent. You're starting on the voyage. You're in this big ocean. All the kids are in the swimming in the sea. They're in the ocean and your child is struggling. They are sinking. Something is up. Sometimes it's right away, right? Your child starts kindergarten, first day, getting calls, second day, getting calls. And you're like, something's off. Other times you're volunteering in the classroom and you start to notice your child is really struggling. And other times it's in the back of your mind. It's sitting in there like this uncomfortable thing but it takes you so long. And then other times you're like, things are great. And then the school's calling you and you're like, what? So it's this whole little thing and it's a different time frame for everybody. But once you absolutely know something's up, so then you need to develop what I call a life preserver. And that's where you figure out what are the identified needs that my child struggles with. And then the other part is what are the suspected or actual disabilities that my child has? If, okay, there's identified needs and my child has a suspected eligibility for special education, that's the key to the life preserver. Because the next step is you're going over to what's called child find. And that's where the districts are like in this little boat and they're looking out and they're supposed to search and serve. They're supposed to identify, locate, and test children, but they won't be able to find that child unless you come out and say, hey, my child has unique learning needs and they have a suspected disability. So once you know what that cycle is and you've identified those two areas, then you need to do some research. Then you need to know what to ask for. So how do you determine what to ask for? You look on your state website. Okay, what is the eligibility for a learning disability? What is the eligibility for getting speech and language services? What's the eligibility for getting a one-to-one assistant? That's always a funky one. It's always very district specific. So you look at all of those things. And then when you go to craft your letter, then you need to really become like a school psych and be able to look at all of your child's report cards, look at all that and use that evidence of when you write the letter. So when you write your letter, you're not just saying, I want my child tested for a learning disability. You'll say, here's my child's strengths. Here's what they can do. Here's what they can't do. Here's what they need to learn. And here's what the barriers are to their learning. And I want my child tested in the areas of speech and language, blah, blah, blah. And that way, when you meet with the team, 
you already know the timeline they need to respond. You submit your letter right through FERPA so that the letter is documented. And then before the timeline, you're like, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to review my request. So when the team meets with you, here's my letter, here's copies, here's my parent report. I wrote up a parent report. Here's all the data that I did here. I took John to tutoring. Here's what the tutoring says. Okay. And then that way, it's very hard for the team to say no, because you have yes. evidence, you have documentation, you submitted it in writing, and you're saying what, like the scope and sequence that you would like the team to review and consider. So if they have that information when they review and consider, your chances of being denied are much smaller. And at the very least, there's a huge documentation. Your child has a suspected disability. So it's very hard for them to say no. Okay. So by the way, you just did evaluations on the 10 because you were in a lifeboat. I'm <laughs> sure there are lifeboats. The 10, everybody, is a state route. Is it a state route that goes north yeah. to south in California? It goes yeah. on the coast. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, two things. One is if you don't know what the eligibility categories are, go to your state's department of ed and like literally type in, I'm sure I could do it in California right now. California Department of Education, special education eligibility forms, and the forms are going to pop up. Kentucky Department of Education, special education um, eligibility forms, and the forms are going to pop up. So you can look at the planning form for the evaluations and because you've got a consent. So you look at that consent form and you can look at the eligibility categories because it'll say to test for a, spe a specific learning disability and reading. This is, we're looking for these standards or this qualifying thing that comes straight from the regs. April, we should tell everybody that it is 7.30 on a Friday night and I don't really have very good expressive language skills right now. <laughs> Do you need a speech and language evaluation, Ashley? <laughs> I need a margarita is what I need. <laughs> I have like terrible lighting. It's super dark in my home office. It's just really not happening. Um, when you were talking, I thought of one advocacy thing. And this is what happens with you and me as we just start conversing. Pardon me for hijacking your podcast. But so you talked about how if you build it all, then you've got a better chance of getting it approved. The negotiation or advocacy strategy to that is it is human nature for, for anybody to pay better attention to somebody that is prepared, knowledgeable, articulate, organized. They are simply going to take you more seriously if you go in and act like you know what you're doing and if you ask for it in a reasonable, rational way. And so... I think like doing that, yes, you're establishing the record and yes, you are laying it all out there and making it easy peasy for them, but they're still going to ask in the meeting, the principal might call you or the case coordinator, whoever might call you the night before and say, what do you really want? They ask me that. And if you go in and you've got it all laid out and you've got it all prepared for them, they're going to take you more seriously. And in fact, in a lot of cases, they're going to know that you more than they do, which might just intimidate them into a, well, okay. You don't want to use intimidation as a strategy, but sometimes they say, they say to me, I'm not really sure I understand what you're saying, but if you want it, we'll do it because I've done so much research. They're like, I don't even know what interoception is, but 
Sure, if you found that test and our co-op has it, then we'll run it and see what it says. So that's just an aside. And that's absolutely true. What you said, Ashley, is it's it doesn't matter. I've worked with advocates and being myself an advocate is I've gone into some meetings and you're like, that's not right. That's not what the state says. Yes, you feel amazing when you do it. What ends up happening? You're, the team will shut down. You probably won't get what you're asking for. And ultimately, where does it backfire? It backfires on the child. So you have to go in there with a flexible mindset. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're able to look at my parent report, review and consider. Teacher, what do you think? Teacher, what supports would help you with my child? Asking about that during a meeting, what would, so John's not meeting his goals. What would it take for him to meet his goals? Yeah. I hear you say this, all of those kind of tactics, and I know you talk about that in the ABC course, they are so much more effective than power mousing it because when you power it out, it feels, and it generally does not fare well. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And those are just tried and true strategies that you get better at over time. Okay, so then what happens if you have been approved for special education and you're getting the specially designed instruction and you a pitfall happens? Like talk about when a parent might request a meeting and I'm gonna suggest it's maybe not even when there's pitfalls, what kinds of things could come up that would make you think, oh, maybe we need a supplemental or another or a different or more testing when we're already into the process? It's a really good question. All the time, so many years when I was a school psychologist, I would see the same thing happen over and over again where kids were not meeting their goals. And this happens a lot in middle school and high school. Well, they're not meeting their goals, so we're going to recommend that they spend more time in the resource room, or we're going to recommend that they go from diploma to non-diploma, or if they are at college prep, and then now they're a non-college prep. So anytime team is talking about a more restrictive placement from one to another, before the team needs to consider that, they don't have any data. That means they need more information. That is one time to request testing. Many times I would see before a transition meeting, this is another time, is if your child is going from fifth grade to middle school, from middle school to high school, if you feel like you have a lot of doubts and you're really not sure what's going to be a good option for your child, get them tested, not after they transition. But before, because then you have data, you have information to back it. So before a transition, if you feel like your child is going to need more support, different support, definitely before a change of more restrictive placement. Also, this still happens a lot if they're like, oh, okay, John met his speech goals, so we're going to dismiss him from speech services. Or Sally doesn't need a one aid, so we're going to dismiss her. Just because a child achieves their goals doesn't mean you need you to dismiss. We need to do an assessment. Let's see what's going on because goals is, we need to update the present levels. That's the whole reason why we do an assessment. Where do we go from here? If you have a strong present levels of academic achievement, functional performance, that crafts the IEP. If you don't have any information, your child's IEP under present levels, where are they getting the goals? So 
we have to have that updated section. Also, if you think that your child might need more speech or more something else, an assessment is the way to go. So basically, if you feel like that you're getting pushed or you're having meeting after meeting, it just becomes this mess and you're like, what are they working on? Or if it's been multiple years and you agree to this IEP, you didn't agree to this IEP, then it's all piecemeal. So it's basically when it comes down to change of setting, dismissal from services, transition, or if there's lapses or changes in terms of placement, location, or district, those are always good times to request for an eval. I have one other situation that comes up, and that is if you think that there's a tool that the child might need, like some piece of assistive technology. Stereotypically, we ask for an AT evaluation for talkers, for augmentative and alternative communication devices. I might have a third grader that even has expressive language, but I think maybe a talker will help for their motor planning or to help them get more words in their sentences. They aren't ever using articles and pronouns and those kinds of words. Would a talker help? Will talker help them express their emotions? So sometimes I'll ask for one in order to substantiate a tool. And boy, then is it really helpful to say, so we've talked to somebody in Cincinnati. It's really easy at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And this is what I know about a talker. This is what they're suggesting. And so I think we should do an AT evaluation to look at blah, blah, blah. The other time, not necessarily for a tool, is if you want to add a service or a goal, like you talked about adding a goal, but adding a service. So I see a lot of kids who would not benefit from occupational therapy for fine motor. And so fine motor is written out of their plans when they're in third grade because their hand strength is okay and their handwriting is okay, tolerable. Mm -hmm. Could they benefit from OT supports for sensory integration or for nowadays we are talking so much about interoception, feeling your feelings and understanding your feelings. Could they benefit from an OT to help them with executive functioning, that kind of stuff. So sometimes I'll ask for an OT eval and say, no, I don't want fine motor. You don't have to do the Otis Bronx or whatever that's called, but can we do a brief so we can look at executive functioning, that sort of thing. Are those two, do you see things like that? I definitely see things like that. And that brings me to, to my next point, Ashley, is that you can craft assessment plans jointly with the assessor. People get confused about this because they write their letter and then the assessor gets the stuff and then they give you the plan. It doesn't have to be like that. So you submit your request, let's say for a supplemental eval, then the assessor and you say on your request, I'd like to consult with you before the assessment plan is developed to jointly develop the plan. Then the assessor needs to call you. You always do it in phone, on person. You don't have to do an email and you're like, hey. I would like X, Y, and Z. Now you can't say, I want this test, but what you can say is I would like a test to address X, Y, and Z. So if you think your child has dyslexia, I would like a test to look at these areas. Then when the assessor gives you the assessment plan, that particular area that they're addressing, right? Not the test, but the areas on the plan, so it's jointly developed and the assessor knows, okay, mom wants testing in this. So it always is a plus. Ideally, the assessor should be calling in before they give you the plan anyways, honestly, and be like, hey, mom, how's it going? It's a try. 
That's what I used to do as a psych. It's like, hey, we're not doing a cognitive this time. Are you okay with that? Right. Instead of giving the plan and you're like, why are they not? Oh no, we don't, we only do cognitive once. You got to tell parents this. They're yeah. supposed to sign off on that. And that's a big area is that they do it once and they don't do it again. So you can always jointly communicate with the assessor. The key is you want to do it early and before the plan is given and it's easier. And then a phone call in person meeting goes a long way. Yeah. And also how it scores. Sometimes they don't give you all the subtest scores or you don't get the nonverbal intelligence score or, and so lots of times I'll say, I just want to make sure that we're getting this and this, and I don't necessarily care what you do, but, and some parents, like in the IQ world, you and I have talked about IQ cognitive testing quite a bit. Like some parents are like, okay, well, I'm okay with the standard Binet, the Stanford Binet. And they don't know why, but you've got to talk about what tests are going to be run, even though you can't mandate it, talk about the benefits to certain tests and what that test might run. And is the Woodcock Johnson similar to the Kaufman? And where can we compare apples and apples? Sometimes maybe we've got one academic test, both of those test academic skills, you guys. And, and I'm not super good at this, right? But I'll look at it and say, that doesn't give us the such and such. Can we, how could we dive further into phonological processing? Or how could we dive further into reading comprehension? It, it, what's that gray oral test or reading? Could we do something? Is there something else like where we can dive a little further into? I think that one's for fluency, but can we dive a little bit further into this concept or that concept? And sure, those are discussions. That's why parents are on IEP teams, right, April? Exactly. And they should be part of assessment plan development. It's supposed to be a collaboration. Unfortunately, the way it's generally done, and I did this too as a psych, especially when I was a new psych, they would give me literally the assessment plan when I was like an itinerant. I show up to the school and they're like, okay, here's two assessment plans. You're going to test, write the report and be done by the end of the day. I'm like, where's the parent input? You got to do that today. I'm like, So sometimes the way it's done, it's that top-down approach, right, to advocacy instead of a bottom-up. A bottom-up approach is like, what does the child need? And we develop the assessment and the plan from there. It's like a house. And that's the ideal way to do it. Not only do you get parent involvement and collaboration, but ultimately you get an outcome-based IEP because everyone's been working together to collaboratively to do it. Sure, the school can do it with no parent input. Is it going to be helpful? No. Is the child going to achieve their goals? Probably not because it wasn't really a holistic plan to begin with. Yeah. Ah, man, you're so good. Okay. So here's the most exciting news, you guys, is that April has been working on some big stuff. And so if you like what April has to say about testing, wait till you see what April has put together about evaluations and eligibility and using those to develop an IEP because April, tell them the big news. So I am launching my first toolkit and I'm super excited because I wanted to launch the most important one, which is how to request testing. And so in my toolkit, it's going to be a self-led You can do it from your home. You can do it for your pajamas. You can do it from the pickup line. And you do these self-led courses. I've got 14 videos, 90 minutes of me talking, fillable PDFs and professional grade letters drop in your information. And I guide you through the entire process. And so it doesn't matter if your child has never had an IEP and this is the first time you're going through the voyage 
or they've had 20. You can use this course for the first of all, the 20th or whatever, and it's ever you want it, it's there and ready for you. And all the information you will use every time after the getting testing, because every three years we have to go through this process. Yay. I'm so proud of you. And I am so happy that this resource is out there because what April's courses and materials really focus on is the special education process from the school psychologist perspective. So the evaluations and the eligibility component of it and April so good. We have not talked about this. I'm totally putting you on the spot, but do you have anything planned for RTI or MTSS? Are you, do you plan to explain that for people? Cause I think that could be something that people could really benefit from. Sure. I can talk about it. Do you want me to talk about it now? No, I don't think we need to talk <laughs> about it in this. Everybody's ah, now that my kids have just gotten in the car. Maybe we'll do a third podcast. Holy cow. You could be the first repeater wow. on the podcast. I think that would also be a very beneficial course for you to develop. Here I am just being a business coach for you. Yeah, I think that would be really good. I loved going to, we call them in California SSTs, but we had intervention meetings and those are like some of the most amazing meetings. And that was one of the reasons why I knew I was going to be an advocate is because I found those my faith, not <laughs> only because I knew who was coming up and down the testing line, but I was like, this is amazing. Developing yeah. accommodations and all of those things for students without an IEP. I'm like, why can't we do this all the time. And so yeah, my like, thinking is different from other people because I take the aspect of special ed and I basically work with everybody, which is unusual. And so I would love to talk about this topic with you. I think we might call that universal design for learning. April. Yeah, I think that's what that's called. Hey, tell everybody where you can, where they can find you. So you can find me on LinkedIn under April Rarig or Rise Educational Advocacy on Instagram. I'm there on Facebook. And then my website is riseeducationaladvocacy.com. Yay. Oh my gosh. Of course you're amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ashley.